the views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines, the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. Have you gotten your COVID shot yet? Well, if you do, businesses want to say thank you and congrats. Businesses across the country are offering free merchandise if you get the vaccine. In Cleveland, the Market Garden Brewery is offering 10-cent beers to the first 2,021 people, get it, 2021, who show a COVID-19 vaccine certificate. At the greenhouse of Wald Lake in Michigan, they're giving away a free joint. The Cleveland Cinemas is giving away free popcorn for the rest of this month. And Krispy Kreme is giving you a free glazed donut every day for the rest of the year. To which physicians and nutritionists have quickly said, eating one glazed donut a day means you're going to gain 15 pounds by the end of the year. 15 pounds. Oh, and by the way, it's not just businesses in the United States that are doing this. In China, if you get the vaccine, the Chinese government will give you a free ice cream cone. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to see that a lot of folks are using the carrot approach for encouraging folks to get the vaccine. But let me tell you, a stick is probably coming. The vaccine passport. Will we be required to show proof that we've been vaccinated in order to go into businesses, public places, get on airplanes? It's legal. Businesses, universities can require that you show proof of vaccination in order to come onto the premises. The airline Cafe Pacific is doing a test for its pilots and crew. JetBlue and United are as well. New York has launched the Excelsior Pass, blockchain-based proof that you have been vaccinated. Walmart has launched an app. If you get your shots at Walmart, the app lets you prove that you did so. Rutgers University, Brown, and Cornell all require that their students show proof of vaccination. The Miami Heat has a section of the stadium only available to those who've been vaccinated. Not everybody's happy about this. The governor of Texas has banned any company that receives state funds from requiring proof of vaccination. The Florida governor has also barred businesses from demanding proof. And Mississippi's governor says he opposes the idea as well. You know who else doesn't like the idea? The World Health Organization. They do not support mandatory proof for international travel. Israel's got a green pass in place. 
You need it to go to restaurants, concerts, or sporting events in contrast to who's attitude. And what about the Biden administration? They've made it clear the president does not support proof of vaccination. We'll have to see how this shakes out. Oh, by the way, there's another freebie that was launched. National Burrito Day was April 1, and Chipotle gave away $100,000 worth of free burritos and another $100,000 in, well, you tell me, if you were Chipotle and you were trying to do something that your customers would find of interest that would incentivize them to come to the store to try to win a contest of a $100,000 prize, that $100,000 of, you know what they decided? Bitcoin, free burritos, and maybe $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. Each customer had 10 tries to guess a six-digit code so that they could win one or the other. Another illustration that Bitcoin is becoming mainstream. So my only question is this. Is the place that's given out the free joints next door to the place that's given out the free burritos? In California, Bolthouse Farms is gone even a step further than all the above. They're paying their workers $500 each if they get vaccinated. They're hosting inoculation events at the company. So this debate, this conversation is going to continue, I think, for as long as COVID does. And here's a common question that has come up lately. Should you laminate your vaccine card? You know, if you've been vaccinated, you know the drill. There's a card. It's kind of the stock of an index card. And the person who gives you the vaccine writes down the date and which vaccine you got and the code, the serial number or the inventory number, I guess, for tracking purposes. And they give you the card and you have to bring the card back when you get your second shot and you get to keep the card. And if you later, in fact, have to prove to someone you got vaccinated, supposedly this card is your evidence. Well, it's a piece of paper. It's an index card. You know, they can get torn and get ripped. It can, you know, get messed up in the wash. So a lot of folks are asking the question, should I laminate my vaccine card? My opinion? No, don't laminate the card for all kinds of reasons. Number one, you've noticed on the card, there's space for more entries. What if you need a booster shot? They decide in six months or a year, you got to get a booster. If you laminate the card, you're not going to be able to write on it anymore. Second, this card isn't a legal government ID. Nobody signs it, not even you. I mean, it's just info. There's nothing all that important about it. Why don't you just photocopy it instead? Or better yet, since you might want to write more info on it later, just put it in a protective plastic sleeve, something that allows you to remove it. Because if you laminate the card... That's a permanent act. You can't unlaminate it terribly easily or safely. So my recommendation, no, don't laminate the card. I'm not even sure why you need to be carrying it around with you necessarily. It's not like a driver's license, at least not yet. Let's change gears and talk about what else is going on in the world of the pandemic in the space of landlords, commercial landlords. Well, We saw what happened in the midst of the pandemic with so many retailers closing up shop. 
Well, new retailers are coming in and the landlords are cutting them deals. They're now letting retailers pay their rent as a percentage of sales. So instead of you having to pay a fixed amount of rent and you don't know if you can afford it because you don't know how much money you're going to earn because you don't know how many people are going to come to the store in the midst of lockdowns, et cetera. Well, if your sales go down, you're not going to have to pay a lot of rent because the rent will be based on your sales. If sales are up, the landlord makes a lot of money. So everybody's got some skin in the game. Good deal, right? Well, here's a question that's now being bandied about. What about e-commerce? Let's say that you have a retail store and you're supposed to pay your landlord rent based on your sales. But what if you do sales on your website? The customer never came to the store. The local staff in the store didn't get involved. They didn't deal with the local store's inventory. Nobody visited you. Why should you pay the landlord a piece of that revenue? Well, landlords want to cut of those sales, and the renters don't want to pay it. We're going to have to wait and see how that shakes out as well. It's an illustration of the increasing complexity of the world we live in today. On the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a five-year lease was just signed for $5,500 a month, half of what the previous tenant paid, and that also included four months of free rent. It's an illustration that landlords are recognizing the market has changed. They can't command the high rental prices that they did in the past. They're lowering their rents, and retailers are coming back. That's all pretty good news. You know what else is down? The number of vehicle miles traveled in the United States. Well, that's no surprise. We were all working from home throughout all of last year, and... We weren't in the cars and on highways. Total number of vehicle miles traveled in the U.S. fell 17% last year. But the number of pedestrian deaths, people hit by cars, rose 20%. 6,000 people were killed by automobiles last year. How could this be? Fewer cars on the road, but more people getting killed by cars. Well, there are a couple of reasons, and I'm sure you can guess them all as well as I can. The drivers are driving faster. They're driving more dangerously and recklessly. They're not paying as good attention on the road. They're playing with their phones. They're distracted. And so are the pedestrians. They're looking down at their phone as they're stepping off the curb instead of doing what mommy taught you. Look left, look right, look left again. You know what else is going down in value? In Portugal, mortgage interest rates. You buy a house for $380,000. You don't pay any mortgage interest. In fact, the bank pays you $45 a month. You make the principal payment, but the interest rate is below zero. 30,000 mortgages in Portugal are negative. The bank pays the homeowner for the privilege of owning the home. How cool is that? You know what else is down? Since 1989, ownership of bank CDs, 60% reduction in the number of people who own bank CDs during the same period since 1989, a 66% increase in the number of households that own stocks. As interest rates have come down, bank CD ownership has gone down. And as the stock market has gone up, stock ownership has gone up. Can't say any of that is a surprise. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Triple Eight Plan Rick, rickedelman.com.
For more information on what you need to do now, go to rickedelman.com. That's rickedelman.com. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. I was talking in the last segment about Chipotle offering $100,000 of Bitcoin as a contest to induce people to come into the store. Bitcoin, really? Why would a big company use Bitcoin as a marketing ploy? And are there that many people interested in Bitcoin? Well, I got an email from Osmond this week, and he wrote to me the following question. I'm writing to you, Rick, from Turkey. I have little English. I translated with Google Translate. I need your advice about buying Bitcoin. Well, Osman and I had a very nice exchange, and yes, Google Translate made it incredibly simple and easy. And you might be asking, why would Osman be writing to me, A, from Turkey, and B, about Bitcoin? Why would someone living in Turkey want to buy Bitcoin? Well, you might want to take a look at the current issue of Economist magazine, which had a couple of huge stories on what's happening to the economy in Turkey. The president of the country just fired the head of their central bank. This would be the equivalent of the president of the United States firing the head of our central bank. The Economist magazine called it a reckless decision. The lira, their currency, fell 15%. Their stock market fell 16% on the news. And this wasn't the first central bank chief that the president of Turkey has fired. He's actually the third central bank chief who was fired in the last two years. Robin Brooks, chief economist at the Institute of International Finance, says, quote, even if another candidate will be put in, who knows how long they'll stay in charge? This was basically the final straw. And Charles Robertson of Renaissance Capital said, quote, These are the worst moments any emerging market has experienced in a quarter of a century. The Economist magazine calls it macroeconomic muddles and meddling. They accuse the president of Turkey of intellectual confusion, resulting in unstable currency and unstable prices. Turkey's inflation rate is 15%. Its short-term foreign debt is $140 billion, a fifth of the country's GDP. Its total foreign debt is 80% of GDP. So is it any wonder that Osman, living in Turkey, reaches out to me to say, I need your advice about buying Bitcoin? And this is why you need to realize Bitcoin is a global asset. You might be wondering, do we really need Bitcoin here in the United States? Well, the answer you could argue is, well, maybe not. We have a stable government, a stable currency, and an effective economy. Is Bitcoin really necessary? Well, the United States attributes are not widely shared around the world. Other governments, other nations struggle incredibly economically and they have a pretty good incentive for wanting to pay attention to digital assets. Let's shift gears now to another element of the investing world. It took six days to clear that ship out of the Suez Canal. What was the total damage? How much? Who's going to have to pay for it? Egypt says they lost, the government, that is, of Egypt, says they lost $90 million in lost toll revenue. 
Companies missed their delivery deadlines. Agricultural goods on these ships that all went bad. 400 ships were in that traffic jam. There was damage to the ship, damage to the canal. Insurance claims will be billions of dollars. A Japanese company owns the ship. Panama registered it. A Taiwan company operates it. A German company hired the crew. (laughs) Hundreds of companies rented space in the ship's containers from all over the world. Dozens of insurance firms in the U.S., Europe, and the Far East all wrote policies. Investigators want to know who was responsible for the disruption. The crew? The tugboat pilots working for the Suez Canal Authority? Or was it an act of God? The answer determines who, if anybody, has liability. The only thing we know for sure is that it's going to take years, maybe decades, to sort it all out. And the only people certain to get money are the lawyers. Volkswagen, meanwhile, has apologized for misleading consumers and investors for its April Fool's joke. The company sent out a press release saying they were changing its name to Volkswagen, V-O-L-T, to promote its electric vehicles. Well, everybody thought that they were serious. They were changing the name of the company. The stock went up 16%. And then the CEO of Volkswagen had to say, April Fool's, the SEC is now looking into it for alleged stock manipulation. Robinhood, meanwhile, is announcing it's removing the confetti that drops every time you trade on its platform. People have criticized the company for the gamification of investing. And Robinhood is no longer celebrating for a lot of reasons. Number one, traffic to their website is down 63% from its high of earlier this year. Individuals purchasing stocks, their activity is also down 60% in the last week. Are investors getting bored with buying stocks? What I think is that they're excited about baseball and they're returning to where they came from, sports betting. In 2020, 60% of large cap stock funds failed to beat the S&P 500, their benchmark. Six out of 10, once again, for the 11th year in a row, most large cap stock funds fail to do as well as the index. I'll ask once again, Why are you trying to time the market? By the way, what exactly is your ETF buying? A lot of folks love ETFs. We like them here at Edelman Financial Engines. We routinely provide them for our clients, but we're careful in our selection, our analysis of these products. Are the securities inside your ETF easy to trade, or are they filled with illiquid securities? If your ETF holds illiquid securities, Your ETF could be worth a lot less than the posted net asset value. If there's a run on the bank, so to speak, if a whole lot of folks seek redemptions at one time and a lot of demands for the ETF to be liquidated, how easily could those securities be liquidated if they are relatively illiquid? Separately, the SEC has announced they're probing the conflicts of interest in financial advice given by advisors and brokers, especially those that harm senior citizens and retirement savers regarding the advice on 401k rollovers. Advisors and brokers who sell mutual funds and annuities with higher commissions than the customer might currently be paying with their existing accounts. 
You need to make sure when you're dealing with a commission-based broker or advisor, what is their motivation? Why are they telling you to do whatever it is they're telling you to do? In New York, the Department of Financial Services has fined New York Life $11 million for causing clients to switch annuities to one that pays less income than the one they had before. You need to be careful. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. We often talk about the future, what's coming down the pike in terms of exponential technologies. We'll check out what's happening in the field of robotics. Fenway Park is now using robots with ultraviolet lights that kill 99.99% of pathogens, including COVID-19. Meanwhile, researchers from Tufts University and the University of Vermont are building biological machines from the eggs of a frog. They move independently, push objects, and team up to create swarms. This isn't genetic engineering. They're using an algorithm to test designs and then use microsurgical tools to build machines from living cells. They call them xenobots. They self-assemble their bodies from single cells, and they say there are applications in therapeutics to environmental engineering. All pretty exciting stuff about the future that's on its way. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple H, Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. I want to tell you a story about NASPA. This is a big deal organization, the student affairs administrators in higher education, deans from thousands of colleges and universities around the world. Founded in 1918, a passionate and diverse community of professionals and faculty dedicated to fulfilling the promise of higher education for every student. 15,000 professionals are members of the uh, NASPA organization from 1,200 colleges and universities in all 50 states and 25 countries. NASPA just held their 2021 annual conference. It was a virtual conference this year, as most organizations are continuing to do. And their keynote speaker was Susie Orman. And immediately following her closing keynote address the organization issued a written letter of apology to all of its attendees. Quote, We write to specifically address Susie Orman's remarks. She was insensitive and offensive, and for that, we sincerely apologize. Susie's comments tied self-worth to financial progress, ignored the difficulties that many individuals experience and used offensive language to describe the area of Chicago in which she grew up. We apologize. And that letter was signed by the president of the NASPA organization, the chair of the board, and the conference chair. Well, Susie, what have you got to say about that? What a shame. What a shame. Susie, did you know you were going to be offending so many people? When it comes to money, no. There is nothing that I do not know. That I'm sure about. 
Looks like there are some folks who are no longer Susie Orman fans. I am a personal finance expert. In fact, I'm the personal finance expert for the entire world. I don't know, Susie. I don't think you are. Get Great Rick idea. Edelman, who was on Business Center the other night, say whatever he said and get him here, too, and I'll smack his Wait, little face. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. There she goes again. And I'll smack his Wait, little face. Oh, boy. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I'm very happy to welcome onto the program Marlene Uliski. She is Manager of Financial Empowerment at the National Disability Institute. She had a career for 35 years with the Social Security Administration, including Director of the Office of Disability Adjudication and Review, where she helps families deal with Social Security Administration disability issues. This is an incredibly common issue. Nine percent of U.S. households have a member of the family who has a disability. And the federal government in recent years passed the ABLE Act, which is of direct benefit to families who have a member who has disabilities. So, Marlene, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. In addition to your long and distinguished career helping Americans deal with the economic issues associated with disability, there's a connection that your family has as well uh, on a personal level. Talk about your nephew, Jeremy. I'm very pleased to talk about Jeremy. Um, My nephew, Jeremy, is a fine young man. Um, I want you to picture him. He's always smiling. He's very respectful, and I couldn't be more proud of him. He lived at home for most of his life with his mother and his father, um, my brother. And while his dad worked, he spent a lot of time with his mom. And he would play video games like most individuals with an intellectual developmental disability. He liked to play basketball and bowl and Special Olympics, and he was a very social guy. But a crisis happened in our family, and it was about 10 years ago his mom passed away. And it was very unexpected. She was young. She was only 52 years old. She had no health conditions whatsoever. And Jeremy couldn't wake up his mom that morning. And that changed his life. Our whole world changed at that time. And our focus became what will happen to Jeremy. Well, that is a tragic story. I'm so sorry to hear of this. And uh, you know, in olden days, it was very common for children with disabilities to predecease their parents. They very often young infants and small children didn't have long life expectancies. But today, that is not as common. Where thanks to innovations in medicine and healthcare, public health, uh, and greater affluence uh, in society. People with disabilities are likely to have very long life expectancies and outlive their parents. And what happens when their caretakers, their support system, is no longer there for them? This is a situation faced by millions of American households. What are you and your family doing to protect Jeremy's financial future? Well, let me go back a little bit and give you a little bit of information about Jeremy. Jeremy's like many adults and many children who have a disability and he receives a disability-based benefit from Social Security, but many individuals who have a disability receive a number of benefits from various federal or state or local programs. And many of those programs are means-tested. And by means-tested, I mean that those programs look at someone's income and their resources, and some of the programs use the word assets instead of resources, but it's money in the bank, investments, things like that. They look at that to determine whether or not someone qualifies for those services. 
So the more money you have personally, the more assets, more resources, the less money you'll get from state and local and federal government uh, support systems. As an example, um, the Supplemental Security Income Benefits Program, that's a means-tested program. Someone has to have limited income to qualify and limited resources. And when I say resources, they must have less than $2,000 in resources. Now, that $2,000 figure hasn't changed since about the 70s. And I want to emphasize here, we're talking about $2,000 of assets, not $2,000 of income. Correct. And so when a family member, relatives, aunts, uncles like you, you're an aunt to Jeremy, say we want to help provide support. But if you do give money to Jeremy, you could inadvertently cause him to lose the support systems that he's getting from the federal and state governments. You are absolutely correct. And that's a problem. But ABLE changed all of that. And so talk about the ABLE Act and how it has made a lot of improvements. The ABLE Act, um, it was passed in 2014 under President Obama, and it's made a significant change in all of that. What it allows for it, every person is with a disability is entitled to a savings and investment account. Every person with a disability is entitled to one account. But it's a savings and investment account established under 529A of the Internal Revenue Service Code. They're similar to the college savings accounts that you hear of, the 529 accounts. And what it allows, it allows for eligible individuals who have a disability to establish this account. And the criteria is established by Social Security. And anyone can contribute to that account. And they could contribute up to $15,000 per year um, if the beneficiary or the account owner is working that person may be able to contribute even more than that. And so I'm assuming that the family did create an ABLE account for Jeremy. Um, Yes. In fact, my brother, his dad, and I assisted Jeremy in opening that account. We're listed on that account because Jeremy really can't manage that account on his own. He doesn't understand about investments at all. And so what is your advice for folks who are listening to this who have a member of the family with a disability? My best advice is to open that account as early as possible because the account grows tax-free. The limit for ABLE accounts is the same as the state limit for 529 college education accounts in the state where that account was established. And that ranges anywhere from 235000 to 529000 across the country. And as Jeremy withdraws money from that account over time, that income does not count against him for qualifying for uh, means-tested social service programs. No, it does not. And that's very, very important to emphasize. The money he withdraws, it it must be used for what's called, quote unquote, qualified disability expenses. But a qualified disability expense, it could be almost anything. The IRS has defined very, very broad categories, and they didn't drill down to specific qualified disability expenses because every person who has a disability may have different expenses. It's so broad that it even includes daily or basic living expenses. So that would be food, that would be shelter and things like that. It could be education, it could be job coaching, it could be assistive technology, um, home modifications. It could be almost anything, so long as it's legal. As well, of course, fundamentals such as housing, food, medicine, clothing, transportation. 
We're talking with Marlene Uliski, the manager of financial empowerment at the National Disability Institute, who has a personal connection to this conversation as well. Marlene, this has been terrific information. Thank you so much. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about the work being done at the National Disability Institute, how would they contact you? Visit our website. It's www.ablenrc.org. We have a variety of resources available on our website. We include even a special needs trust, pool trust, ABLE comparison chart. We have roadmaps. We have comparison tools for the various programs and so on. Um, I think if a family member visits this site, they'll be very pleased with the extent of the resources we provide. Marlene, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rick, for having me. That was Marlene Uliski of the National Disability Institute. And here at Edelman Financial Engines, my colleagues and I help clients frequently with the issues associated with having a member of the family who has a disability. We're very, of course, familiar with ABLE Acts and, and routinely assist our clients in establishing ABLE accounts under Section 529 of the tax code. So if you have a member of your family with a disability, we encourage you to contact both the National Disability Institute and us here at Edelman Financial Engines at 888-PLAN-RIC. That's 888-752-6742. Online at rickedelman.com. the publisher of the newsletter Inside Personal Finance coming up on the Rick Edelman Show.